0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: And today we're talking about Tidal Lock. Which, as we were discussing earlier, sounds like it would have been like an awesome lady surfers in prison movie from like mid-90s cinema. Yeah,
0: like Tidal yeah. Lockdown.
1: Yeah, Tidal Lockdown. They
0: were rebels on the board, and they paid dearly beneath the sea. Something like
1: that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's I like the added dimension that's an underwater prison. Yeah, so,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: That's why it's so difficult to break out of. But no, we are not talking about that wonderful film idea. No. Well, we are uh, instead talking about tidal locking in terms of the way our planets and the way our moons gravitate around other objects.
0: Yeah. And uh, how it actually affects the, the planets um, and the stars and the moons. And if you think about the moon and the Earth, mm-hmm. for instance, uh, the moon is tidally locked to the Earth.
1: We look into the night sky and we always see the same side of the moon.
0: The like same face The same there.
1: face of the moon. And the moon's backside is always facing away from us. Uh, the dark side of the moon, if you will, even though it's not technically dark all the time because uh, it gets sunlight as well, it's just mm-hmm. we never see it. It's it's tidally locked to us, not to the sun. If we were tidally locked to the sun, uh, if, if an object were tidally locked to the sun, it would be a different scenario where only one side of the planet would receive uh, sunlight, and the other side would be cast in perpetual darkness.
0: Yeah. But for us, this is a very stable arrangement, right? Right. Uh, us having the, the moon tidally locked to us and the man of the moon just being the, that same face that we see every night and presumably his, his hind quarters on the other side.
1: Yeah, the moon, of course, is rotating. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's important to know. It's not that the moon is motionless up there, but it completes one rotation about its axis in the same time it takes to complete one orbit around the Earth. Right. So it's it's just lined up perfectly it's uh, there's a synchronicity. Yeah. In, in the way these uh, these worlds are moving.
0: And meanwhile, we're just, you know, turning around on our axis going, hey, sun, and, and getting day and night, right? Right.
1: And the tidal enters it because uh, the synchronization uh, is caused by strong tidal forces from the Earth that effectively lock the moon's orientation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really interesting to, to note that it wasn't always like this. The rotation has sort of set in over time, which I think is pretty fascinating.
0: That's right. The gravitational pull has, has changed the rate of, uh, the speed, I should say, mm-hmm. of our... Uh Rotation. But this has happened over millions and millions and millions, millions, of, millions of years. Millions of years,
1: yeah, yeah. And uh, there are, of course, other moons that have a similar situation going on. You see it a lot with moons. If we look all the way to the edge of our solar system, to the planetoid Pluto, you'll find that it has a little moon called uh, Charon, uh, or Charon, mm-hmm. however you want to say it. My uh, Dante teacher always said Charon. Uh, well, yeah,
0: yeah. Italian.
1: Yeah. Salvi Maria, if anyone, uh, anyone attends the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and wants a good Italian Dante teacher. Uh, check up uh, old Sal
0: that's right say ciao
1: but anyway uh, so Charon's orbit around Pluto takes 6.4 Earth days and one Pluto rotation uh, takes 6.4 Earth days what's interesting here is that Charon neither rises nor sets but basically hovers over the same spot on Pluto's surface all the time so it's like a a really extreme example of tidal locking
0: yeah and this again happens with moons but it also is very common that it happens with stars as well red dwarf stars Mm. most commonly Uh, So a planet gets locked into, or or rather I should say, yes, the planet gets locked into the the star's orientation. Mm -hmm. And that changes everything for the planet, right? Because if you are just facing one side of the sun, eh, you would never experience day and night like we do. One side would constantly be in darkness while the other side would constantly be in light.
1: There are various old folk tales. Where like uh, there'll be like a maiden who's tasked with a job, like she has to before the sun comes up, she has to finish knitting a scarf, or or generally it's something a little more complex, like draining an entire pond with a straw or a spoon or something.
0: That sounds just like those old folk tales are. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It's always some ridiculous task, and then uh, like a good fairy or something will come along and turn back the clock. In real life, there would be just catastrophic uh, consequences mm-hmm. because uh, the the cycle of night and day is vital to the way our weather works. The way that the Earth as we experience it works. I mean, you have one side, uh, you have daylight regions heating up, you have night regions cooling down, mm-hmm. you have airflow moving back and forth. I mean, it's all part of the, the system. There's an article in House of Works called How Weather Works that uh, I happen to write, but it does a good job of, of taking uh, some of the very simple elements of night and day and uh, using that as a starting point for understanding how global weather operates.
0: Well, and also uh, how it affects every living organism, right? Yeah. And we take that for granted sometimes because, of course, the sun rises and the sun sets, um, and we, we live and die by this configuration. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there, there are obviously uh, other configurations going on in the universe, and the question is, what does this look like? And if you did have this sort of configuration where it was only day, only night on one half um, of the planet, would there be opportunities for life? Would organisms have uh, a habitable area? Hmm. And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit more in depth. Um, you know, what, what does the weather look like? Yeah. You know?
1: My mind immediately turned to science fiction, so I, um, I was looking up to, to see what other examples I could think of that were sci-fi related. If anyone out there knows of a good example of a tidally locked world... In science fiction, where they actually explore weather and, and some of the more uh, realistic effects, I would love to hear about them. Because the main examples that come to my mind are things like uh, there's the 1912 novel, The Nightland, by William Hope Hodgson, which I'm pretty sure I've mentioned here before. This is the um, early post-apocalyptic book that is so filled with just fantastic, wonderful, dark ideas, but it's written so tiresomely. So badly that it's you're just constantly sifting for these nuggets of gold amid just utter crap. It has its lovers, and I and I have kind of I have a very much a love hate relationship with this book. But uh, it takes place in a world where the sun is burned out, and the remnants of humanity retreat into these massive geothermal powered uh, pyramids, and they grow crop. Crops in subterranean chambers, and they, they're telepaths, and they're spinning disc weapons, uh, all you know, monsters uh, out in the dark, and all. But what's really cool about it is that um, Hodgson's fiction was based on Lord Kelvin's theories of the way uh, gravity works. So, the Nightland in the scenario, this whole planet is a world again where the sun has gone, gone dark and tidal drag has slowed the earth's rotation to a crawl uh, he depicts this world as one where you have an entire just frozen night side of the world mm-hmm. and then this uh, dying side of the world that's facing a sun that's fading out another example that comes to mind is Jack of Shadows by Roger Zelazny this is a pretty fabulous little novel um, that has a it has a lot of magic in it so it's not really, you know like I say he's not really concerned with weather patterns but there's a side of the, it's a tidally locked world mm-hmm. there's a night world and then there's a day world the day world is ruled by science and technology, and the night world is ruled by magic. And you have a character who's from the the night world, and every time he dies uh, in the daylight world, he's, re- he's reborn on the far side. In, the, in um, the realm of dreams. In the realm of dreams, yeah. Hmm. Uh, and then, in, of course, the, we have to look at Star Trek. There are a few different planets that pop up there, but the most notable seems to be the planet Remus, which is the third of four planets in the Romulan system. And you have a situation here where it's basically a mining world. Mm-hmm. And you have a race of individuals called the Remans. Uh, it's playing on the whole Remus and Romulus. You know, right. The, the Remans are either a separate species that evolve on the dark side of the planet, or they're sort of like uh, the early Romulan setters who mm-hmm. have d- devo- or evolved into uh, a nighttime species. So they look like kind of big bat creatures. They've evolved to live on this dark portion of this tidally locked world.
0: Well, see, and that's what—that's why our imagination can't help but go wild with this. Because when you start to think about um tidally locked worlds, you start to think about you know some sort of organism that may—I'm yeah, not saying that there there are bad people—but um, <laughs> but obviously there are adaptations that nature makes. Right. And so you start to wonder what that would look like. But before you can even start to look at that, you have to really start to think about what uh, this planet would feel like. Um, what sort of weather systems, Um, obviously there would be no seasons, right? Right. Um, The only change in the amount of sunlight would come from the slight variation in distance from the sun because of the, like, for instance, if if Earth were to become locked to the sun um, because of the Earth's orbit being slightly out of round. So if that were to happen with the Earth, then you'd have slight variations. There might be different climate depending on how far away you are from the center of the side that always faces the sun, um, on the equator of the sun facing side, you'd have like these incredibly high temperatures and in the center of land masses that are facing the sun, you'd have hot as hades deserts, right mm-hmm. and then by the coast, okay there would be an incredible amount of thunderstorms because of the rapid ev- evaporation of water. Right. So, yes, there, water could exist in some of these scenarios. And there have been tons of computer models that have told us there's an opportunity for uh, atmosphere to die off to completely evaporate, right? Or it could sustain itself in this continuous cycle where if you have thunderstorms depositing uh, weather systems of rain over to the dark side, I love to think of this dark side as sort of a snow globe effect. Yeah. You know, that it's constantly, you know, snowing over there or raining over there. And uh, and then, again, the cycle just continues on.
1: Yeah. And then, like you say, there are other uh, models of it that show there being very little precipitation mm-hmm. on the night side. Because you end up with the substantial precipitation at the uh, what is called the subsolar point. The, yeah. the point where the, the sun is baking <laughs> the, the earth the most, though, like the dead-on sun zone. And then you have net evaporation, and so you have all the uh, the atmospheric water is transported from the night side to the day side. You eventually have oceans just freezing on the other side of the world.
0: Right. And so it
1: takes a little time because you also there also those oceans are growing saltier due to the evaporation, and they're you know it's still a, a system of water that's very much in flow, so it takes longer for it to uh, to freeze up.
0: Yeah, and so you'd have all these different circles of climates. Basically, it wouldn't just be like oh, this one half of of uh You know, an earth that had become locked to the sun was completely hot, boiling, Mm -hmm. and the other half was frozen, zero. I mean, there would be variations in between, and that's the really exciting thing about... Whether or not um, there would be habitable zones that could support life,
1: right? And this is very much a question when we're looking at these exoplanets um, Mm -hmm. because we're catching these planets in the the habitable zone. But there's a little, uh, there's a certain amount of uh, crossover between habitable zone planets and potentially tidally locked planets. Yeah, especially when it comes to M stars, which are stars that are slightly bigger than the uh, the one that we call Sun. It would be one of those situations where you'd be like, all right, the planet's in the right spot. It's in that Goldilocks zone mm-hmm. where it would, it's just the right size, where it could conceivably have life. Oh, but it's not rotating. So it's kind of like the, the house looks great, but there's no power. You know, it's uh, right. there's something drastically wrong here. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to get back to all this. Uh, so hang in there one second. All right, we're back. Now, astrobiologists uh, think there, there might be some situations, too, where you would have a certain amount of what's called substellar weathering instability occurring, mm-hmm. where basically you have higher temperatures that are resulting in stronger rainfall, and those, the rainfall is weathering away the soil, exposing more and more minerals, which then react with the chemicals in the air. Right. And to a certain extent, that could be counteracted by volcanic activity mm-hmm. on the planet. So, there might be a situation where a tidally locked world would be balanced out a bit, and you would have this habitable zone on the world mm-hmm. uh, generally uh, uh, it would be that that ring that sort of exists as a borderland between the nightland and the and the dayland
0: right, which is that that's the part that I just get so excited about because i think well there's <laughs> <laughs> there's the opportunity for for life existing, and i it kind of made me think about when we were talking about stardust. Though about how difficult it is to build up life on a planet, and you mm-hmm. just have you have to have the absolute right conditions Right. and the right building blocks. So I mean, you know, remember that life evolved on Earth for two billion years before it began to produce and use oxygen, for instance. And organisms used photosynthesis, which used carbon dioxide, and all those little guys produced little puffs of oxygen, and over millions and millions of years created more and more oxygen, and what is now our atmosphere, right? Right. So, you know, we talk about this and we say there could be habitable zones, but again, all these elements have to be just right.
1: Yeah, and the only model for life that we have uh, is very much um, a rotating planet. It is not tidally locked. So it becomes even more difficult to try and imagine how that process might take place on a world uh, where you have just a a night world, a day world, and then this potentially uh, habitable twilight zone. Uh, ring in around. The, right, the right. Yeah. And you'd have to have
0: an atmosphere, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's that's the, the first thing. Um, again, though, there there's this opportunity to have atmosphere, as you said. If you've got enough going on day and night side mm-hmm. that they sort of converge to have these habitable zones that could support, um, you know, an atmosphere and keep it in.
1: Yeah. And th- what's interesting, too, there are some models for uh, tidally locked worlds where it's not, it's not like a perfect tidal lock mm-hmm. where there'll be the two rotations don't completely line up so there'll be like a little bit of uh, wiggle room there so you could potentially have a world where there would be regions that would sort of have a little night and day going on in that uh, habitable ring
0: well and a lot of people have thought about this particularly in terms of earth like what if earth became tidally locked Mm -hmm. to the sun because mercury it's thought was once tidally locked um, radar observations of Mercury revealed that the planet rotates three times on its axis for every two orbits. Yeah,
1: early on we actually thought it was tidally locked. Was yeah, until, I yeah. Nineteen sixty-five.
0: Yeah, the thing is, because of the planet's tiny size and the proximity to the sun, it makes it a really good candidate for being tidally locked. Right. So here's the thing, though. They think that this this weird sort of rotation system that it has going on is the result of a giant impact from an asteroid. that knocked Mercury, once it was tidally locked, um, into what is now sort of an odd rotation configuration.
1: Yeah, it's got a massive uh, hole in it called Rembrandt Crater, which is Mm -hmm. about 715 kilometers wide, which is pretty substantial for a planet that's under uh, 5,000 kilometers in size.
0: Yeah, and they said the asteroid would have been about 43 miles wide and about 550 trillion metric tons in mass. Yeah. So can you imagine this object hurling into Mercury, a tidally locked world, And, and actually changing (laughs) not just the spin, but the, but it even uh, being locked.
1: Yeah, there's there's a theory that this planet-sized impact may have also had an effect on the density of the planet because it's, mm-hmm. a, it's an extremely dense world, and there are a number of theories as to why that may be. Uh, but and one of them is that this enormous impact may have knocked it round.
0: Here's here's what I want to get to is that the what ifs, right? Yeah. And I immediately start thinking, okay, you've got this uh, perpetual night, mm-hmm. and my mind goes to cavefish. Yes. Because cavefish are a great example of something that has adapted to its environment. Cavefish are indigenous to Somalia, and they have been cut off from the sun for up to 2.6 million years. And they lived in dark caves under the Somalian desert for millions of years. Um, and, and then they had lost their eyes and scales and their coloring. And now researchers think that they're they're actually losing their their uh, internal body clocks. What is um, fascinating about that is that it's taken that long mm-hmm. for their internal clocks to kind of get off a bit.
1: Wow, so that's the pace at which these changes occur, really. Yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, you know, the, obviously their, their physical changes occurred, you know, much faster than that. So if you can imagine humans, if this were to happen to Earth, right, for some reason, uh, you know, our eyes kind of scaling over with skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, our pigment changing, but still, even 2.6 million years after the event, having some sort of uh, pull toward this, you know, diurnal world. Yeah. Even though you're in pe- perpetual darkness. Because
1: our entire evolutionary history hinges on it. Exactly. Even if we ended up becoming some sort of Morlock or, or like the creatures in The Descent, you know.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, if you were sun deprived, can you, can you imagine the sort of traditions and metaphors that would arise in language? If you, mm. if you are sun-starved and still dependent on it, and yet you had adapted in some ways.
1: Yeah. Of course, there would be a lot of questions as to how you were obtaining food. And it could, mm-hmm. because as we've explored, the, the situation on the, the dark side of the world would be pretty grim. I mean, there's no, there's no light. So photosynthesis is coming to a close. Right. Um, you have freezing temperatures. You have moisture being drawn to the other side of the world. So uh it's it's hard to imagine what life would consist of in that situation, unless you you did have a scenario where, where individuals were somehow technologically sustained, or if there was some sort of trade situation with the with the daylit world. But uh, but things are going to be pretty severe there too. So I guess it would be more like you would have to have some sort of trade scenario with the twilight world. Like that's the that's the area where civilization is going to thrive more because you're going to have right. the baked side and the frozen side. And only in the middle are things going to be destroyed. right.
0: Right. And, of course, we're talking about, you know, if, if this were to occur on the Earth, this is not something that would happen, like, the next day. This like, would, this we're, would we're take talking a, about millions and millions of good years. would take three weeks to, to yeah, 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 right. But, you know, I mean, you'd have life forms that could not subsist on the, on the sunlit side and vice yeah. versa.
1: Well, you've seen uh, what happens to, say, like, the neighborhoods in Atlanta when uh, when there's a severe snowstorm. Like, two weeks and it's full on cannibalism and road warriors <laughs> in the street. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Atlanta would not fare well. Yeah. Fit situation at all,
1: but the heat side, constant sun, we could we could probably roll with that. Pretty much what we do in the summer anyway. Yeah, you're
0: right. You're right. That, I mean, actually, like eight months out of the year. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's you hear world. us, Florida. Yeah. You hear us, Alabama. All right. So uh, tell us what you think about all that. Uh, do you have any thoughts on a uh, tidally locked world? Do you have some other great examples from science fiction that you would like to, or fantasy you would like to share with us? Is uh, I mean, there's a whole wonderful um, subgenre of fantasy, sci-fi, with the with the dying earth scenario where you have the the sun dying and. Uh, I think I did a blog post about that a while back. It's a a fascinating zone of imagination. But I have not encountered much in the way of tidally locked worlds. So uh, send me some examples. I would especially, again, love to hear examples that uh, take weather into account.
0: Yeah, especially if if you've ever come across uh, some sort of idea of an exoplanet with half of the planet being a snow globe. Yeah. That's that's a, that's all I'm interested in really. Yeah. The Snow Globe part of it. Snow Globe world. Yeah.
1: All right. Well hey, if you want to share it with us, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. On Facebook, we are Stuff to Blow the Mind. And on Twitter, our Twitter handle is Blow the Mind.
0: And feel free to drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Yeah.